Hello and welcome. I'm Magdalena Ball and I'd like to acknowledge the Wabakal people, um, the traditional custodians of the land where I am and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. My guest today is Dr. Lee Kaufman. Lee is Russian born, Israeli Australian novelist, short story writer, essayist, memoirist, mem memoirist, and former academic based in Melbourne. She's the author of three fiction books uh, published in Israel in Hebrew and the memoir, The Dangerous Bride, which was published in 2014 by Melbourne University Press. Lee's also, also the co-editor of Rebellious Daughters, by Aventura Press in 2016, um, which is an anthology of personal essays by prominent Australian authors. Her short works have been widely published in Australia, USA, Canada, Israel, the US, and Scotland. Lee holds a PhD in social sciences and an MA in creative writing and is a mentor, a teacher of writing, regular public speaker, and panel moderator, and of course, uh, the author of um, Two books, one of which I'll be focusing mostly on today, which is Imperfect. Absolutely um, extraordinary, wonderful kind of memoir and um, uh, kind of nonfiction research hybrid type book. And also um, we'll only touch on it, but also um, she is the editor of Split, which is a, a series of, I guess, um, true stories from very prominent and well-known uh, authors. So um, absolute delight to have you here today. Lee, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for this introduction. My head is very big now. <laughs> <laughs> so it should be. Uh, so before we begin um, just chatting, can I ask you to just open the show, if that's okay with you, just to give listeners a little sense of, of uh, Imperfect and the yeah, narrative sure. style? Sure. So as you said, um, Magdalena, it is um, a hybrid work. So of course, you know, for booksellers and, and publishers, they like shortcuts, so they call it memoir, but it's really a work of creating nonfiction. So, but I'll, I'll read something personal. So my story frames the book very, very quickly. It's a book that explores how our appearance can affect our lives in very tangible ways. And I framed the whole book with my own story, which is um, a story of uh, living with multiple disfiguring scars. So uh, I'll just read a little bit from the first chapter which starts with my birth, how surprising. <laughs> yeah, but it's sort of, uh, this is also where the story of my scars begins, with my birth, even though I was not scarred when I was born. I was born with a broken heart. My skull too was almost broken the moment I took my first breath. It was a July morning. After a night of thunderstorms, Siberia's anemic sunlight tentatively entered the almost bare room illuminating the stained floor, a brown lipstick nurse, and my young mother, who was crouched on a narrow iron cot, growling like an animal. She was in her 12th hour of labor, drug-free, though not by choice. The nurse announced that her shift was over and she wasn't going to wait for the next nurse who was running late. My mother howled at this abandonment for words would no longer form amid the pain. The nurse, accustomed to such ridiculous displays of weakness, as she informed my mother, headed towards the door. It was at that very moment that I slid out of the womb. Luckily, I had enough strength in my lungs to summon the nurse's attention. She caught me just as I was about to hit the floor. Death, then, hovered close from the first moment of my life, and not just in the existential, abstract sense, as it is for all living beings, 
My mother, though, feverish, still registered that she had almost lost her firstborn, but now was safe, she thought. This thought would last her three days until the doctors finished examining me, and only then, as was customary in the Soviet Union, introduced me to my mother. Here's your daughter, they said. Your daughter, who has a heart of which she can die. Your daughter, she has a heart of which she can die. Now that I am also a mother and become anxious at the sight of a mere fly loitering around my two sons, I find it almost impossible to write these lines or to think that for the next eight years, my mother didn't know whether I would live or die. And this sort of um, this this bit sets for me the story because really when I think about my scars, um, and some of them are as a result from being born with congenital heart defects, um, some of them from other misfortunes, as I call them, childhood misfortunes that happened to me. But when I'm thinking about my scars, and this is a very cliche thing to say, but it feels real, very real and true to me. I do think about my life trajectory because I would not have had some of the scars, at least, especially like my chest scar, which I can show a little bit here, but it goes on and on. Um, I wouldn't have those scars if I wasn't born already um, with, with this sort of uh, knowledge that I, am about, either, I don't have to have this big surgery or I'm about to die. So basically, like born with this sort of death in, in me, programmed to some extent. Mm. Yes, I mean, the whole, this whole notion, I guess, of, of one's mortality um, is something that I think a lot of us, a lot of people have the luxury, let's say the privilege of pushing to the side and just kind of living, uh, you know, as if death didn't really exist um, or, or it's such a, a long way off that it may as well not exist. And, and yet, I guess, um, one of your, the thesis um, that forms the basis of the book strikes me as, you know, being almost... Um, right from the start, being conscious, that consciousness of, uh, of mortality, of, of um, that being written on the body, uh, in effect. And, and you use that as a big, you know, I guess, a basis to begin working. Did, did you begin with the, the theme um, of scarring or did you begin with your thesis? How did, you, how did the whole um, book in the shape that it is come about? Well, this book was sort of in my head for um, about 25 years before I wrote it or more. Uh, my very, because scars really for me, um, I think scars, they really define me to a large extent of who I am and not just in bad ways. I think they also made me more uh, desirous for life and adventurous in some ways. Um, but I won't go into this now because that's, that's a long story. But um, my very first book that I published, and I published it way, way too young. I was only 20. It was a big mistake. It was a very bad book. <laughs> I don't know how it got published. It was a novel. But it was called Surprise, Surprise, Scars. And that book was a failure. It, it didn't do well, like it didn't get any reviews, it didn't sell well, and it didn't need to. It was even my publisher said to me at the time that it reads a bit like a diary. And what I did in that book, I um, fictionalized my story of having all these scars, but I wrote about it dishonestly. So in my book, there's a happy ending to the book where uh, the protagonist uh, who sort of has always been very self-conscious and made some bad choices like I did in real life because of her scars, because feeling a freak, feeling very unusual, feeling ugly and et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the book, the protagonist goes to the beach she, she always like i used to 
conceal her scars, but at the end of the book, she goes to the beach where she knows that a lot of people who know her will see her. She undresses, remains in bikini, and shows everybody scars, and she feels great about herself. And that was not realistic. That was not my story. It still is not my story. But, but I wanted to give myself then a happy ending in a kind of positive body psychology, kind of positive body, you know, whatever it's called, image, whatever discourse that we have now. Um, and that book haunted me for a long time because, um, because it was dishonest, because it did not tell my story, and because I did not see any other books around me about what it's like to live with, in a body like mine. Um, until very late, actually, in life, until just in the last few recent, in some, in some recent years. Um, so I always wanted to write it. And I always thought I would be writing it as my own story. And perhaps, uh, perhaps I'll bring in general sort of inform, um, stories of other women with scars, or maybe I would write a bit more about what scars mean metaphorically, as well as physically. But then um, five years ago, I was giving birth to my second child. And this is in a roundabout way to answer your question, Magdalena. <laughs> and I was giving my uh, second child birth. It was by cesarean. I couldn't see him. There was like a curtain, but uh, I could feel that the baby came out. And immediately after he came out, there was a great laughter in the room. And I was on drugs. I thought, oh, great. They're just as happy as I am when my baby came out. Later, when uh, my son was put on my chest, I saw why everybody laughed. Because as you may know, probably, Babies are born usually with barely any hair, as my first one was born, or they can have a lot of dark hair. But mine was born with a lot of really fine white hair. What I didn't know at the time, it was, a, it was the first sign that my baby had albinism, which is a condition that results in poor vision, but also a different appearance. Um, so um, it, took me, it took me a while to sort of come to terms with his diagnosis, but by the time I did, I already wanted to write a different book, which became eventually imperfect because I was thinking, well, my child looks different. And now, in terms of color, he now actually has a, just a blonde hair. He doesn't look very different. But if you look at him closely, he has this condition associated with albinism, but poetically can be called, some call it dancing eyes on a stagmus. So his eyes, when he's anxious or tired, would sort of move like this quite a lot. Um, and I was thinking to myself, well, I can conceal my scars because they're non-facial if I want to, and they're not on my hands. But my child will not be able to conceal his difference if he decides to. It's not like you have to conceal, but I've got this choice. I can play with my body. He can't. So by the time... I, so I thought, well, it's time, excuse my language, I got my shit together, I wrote this book, <laughs> and I wrote, but now I was much more interested generally about how appearance really matters in our life, and even though we sort of say uh, beauty skin deep, and you know, don't judge book by the cover, it's all very well-meaning and good statements, but in reality, they don't work like this, and when I thought about it a bit more, I also thought, well, my mother, who is a large woman, she, and she always been since she was a child, her life has been also really affected by this. Or I also have friends who are very beautiful, like extraordinarily beautiful, and their life has been shaped by this too. And that's how Imperfect came to be. Mm. Yes, I mean, it's, uh, I, I think a lot of people have um, remarked on the, um, the cover, <laughs> which I'm holding up now, and the way that it, it kind of um, is imperfect and I'm perfect. Um, yeah. It's an interesting yeah. play. Is that, was that your publisher or did you actually uh, suggest that? No, no, I can't take credit. It's just a great graphic designer and publisher, yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. And it's, uh, I mean, it is really interesting. One of the things that your book draws out and, and maybe a lot of creative, this kind of creative nonfiction um, that plays with form um, really um, pulls out is this move away from binaries or, you know, there is, you know, there is perfect and there is imperfection or there is um, kind of a normal and, and you play a lot with that in the book as well. Um, these notions of, you know, normal and abnormal and um, absolutely, you know, we are visual creatures and we, we look at each other and we judge each other based on appearances. That's very, very obvious when, you know, in anybody's lived experience. And it, I don't really think, um, I think that there are people who kind of fit whatever is the popular trend and maybe um, for them, it's easy for them to discount their appearance. And then there are people who sit outside that center line and, and for whom appearance becomes kind of almost overwhelming through particularly as they're growing up. Um, but it's very interesting how you play with those notions in the book. Um, Thank you. And I just want to quickly say that from when I was sort of researching and I, I did, I spent about 10 years uh, thinking about this book and talking to people and reading and writing. Um, I've actually more and more realized that even when people look what you would call just acceptable, or kind of pretty but not exceptionally beautiful so people will be like really astonished when they see them even those people always have some um some sense that they their appearance somehow shape them in some ways and i read this beautiful book speaking of experimental creative nonfiction. uh have you read uh, maggie nelson's uh, book organauts Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. It's a great book, and and one and it's a, a lot about the body there. Um, so it's a basically it's a memoir for those who haven't heard of this book. It's a memoir about her uh, being in this really interesting relationship with a trans man and having a child with him. But she one of the things she writes there about it. She writes she wrote something like I quote her in my book, but she has always been small and and skinny and light and that's that sort of gave her a sense of freedom as she went through through life in some ways and these are the things that i think we're not thinking about consciously but every person if i sort of talk to them in depth would tell me some kind of story and make some kind of theories about how they know the color of hair the resemblance maybe to some actor or whatever it is but somehow would impact and often not just uh, how they live their lives feel about themselves but even the personality for me definitely my personality has been shaped by my scars in some ways mm, yes and and perhaps by the cultures that we live in as well and oh totally of course you can't talk about uh, personal choices and and uh, personal and feelings without of course we're always embedded in the social world of totally inseparable so true Mm. The book has two very distinct strains and, and you do weave them beautifully, really, almost imperceptibly when you're reading. But the two distinct strains, of course, are your own story, your memoir, which, um, which you, come to, you come back and forth with, I think, um, and also the research you did involving the other, the other people. Um, when you were doing that and working on it, did you see them almost as two distinct pieces of work or were they naturally intertwined for you? I think it was naturally intertwined because I, when I write a book, doesn't matter what the book is, even short work, but especially a book, I always see it as a quest and it always has to be, has to have some kind of personal urgency for me. And when I was writing this book, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to go and meet all the people, because I traveled all around Australia, I even interviewed some people from overseas. Um, 
I really was thinking all the time as I was talking to them, I wanted to hear about them, I wanted to hear their stories, I wanted to understand how the world works, but at the back of my mind, I always had two questions, how to live my life better, and how for only my son, how, for he, how to make life better for him, and, and uh, so for me, these two things, they just were inseparable. It is not just the interviews, but also whatever I read, I always sort of read in the back of my mind, because I wanted to sort of talk about what life has been like for me and for people who I interviewed. But I also, the second part of the book uh, talks about like, well, let's, so the first part of the book sort of answered my question, which was how appearance can shape our lives. And for the second part of the book, I had a question of when this shaping is not in line with how we want to be, not in line with our designs, uh, what can we do about it? Mm. Yes, uh, particularly at the extremes where, where you go. Um, and it, I, I suppose, I mean, one of the really interesting aspects of this is this notion, um, uh, and I guess that this is part of the, your getting your act together. I'll use the word act, but, um, you know, you're as a mother and thinking about your son and then as a daughter and thinking about your mother and this notion of inheritance as well. And, you know, what we, sh this, this kind of lineage that we share um, physically, emotionally, you know, there seems to be this kind of connectedness and we are part of this, um, this ongoing cycle. And, and that also comes through as a, almost a kind of beautiful connective strain through the work. Thank you so much. Mm. You really read it deeply. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard not to. It's, it's that kind of book. Um, but also, how did you pick the people that you profiled? Was it happenstance? I mean, I, you know, I know some of them, Andy Jackson, for example, but, you know, the, many of the, the people in the book that I didn't know, I found myself almost obsessively Googling and finding out more. Um, some of them are so striking to look at um, that, you know, it's, it, it, they're they're so different and yet beautiful and and you you know you pick up that odd that strange beauty and and the fear that it engenders as well as the attraction yeah 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 thank you uh look i uh, interviewed so many people i spoke to maybe at least a hundred people not not all formal not all recorded but informal and, and the informal conversations are also in the book and then when i was sort of faced with this mountain of research, I had to really make those decisions. So who is going to be in the book? And I ended up, because it's not an academic study, I mean, my PhD thesis was about uh, lived experiences of women with non-facial scars. So really women like me, but many of them told stories very different to mine. Um, but for the book, I did not try to be objective. It is a subjective book, it's a personal book. It's a book of, as I said, personal uh, exploration. So my, I just have two criteria. I, I only could pick up about, you know, like to focus on several stories, less than 10. So, was, and then the rest of the people who come and go out of this book, they, they just come and make very short appearances. Uh, but those people I focus like Andy Jackson, who is a wonderful poet who lives in um, Castle Maine. Um, I had two criteria. One was that um, I had to feel some personal connection to their story because it's my book. <laughs> and Andy, of course, I could relate. For example, I'll just give him as an example. He's, you know, he's a creative person. He's a poet. Uh, we both use words to write about, to, to deal with our bodies, to write about our bodies, to explore what they mean to us. So, of course, I wanted to talk to him. What's that? You both are teachers as well. Exactly, exactly right. Mm. Um, and then I have a woman called Mia in the book um, mm. who has dwarfism. 
and she has a son who has <coughs> dwarfism. So of course I was very interested in her story also as a mother. I wanted to know what it's like for her to, to raise her kid. And she was a wonderful storyteller. And that's, that's the second criteria. The second criteria was how much the person has thought of the story made meaning, the kind of meaning that I can sort of take their story, but say something more universal about what the people are saying to me. And with Mia, for example, one of the things that her story was very uh, useful for me to, to explore, she talks a lot about uh, something that really bothers me as well, this, this double pressure that women experience. Uh, women like me and I, who have uh, what I call imperfect bodies, of course, ironically, um, but also any any woman really. So we have this sort of double pressure. One pressure in our culture is on one hand, we're sort of supposed to be very beautiful and look after ourselves and it's our duty to look well. You know, when a celebrity gets caught by paparazzi without makeup, you know, she's described as somebody with unmade face. Uh, but on the other hand, we also fem live in an era of feminism. And so there's a lot of this sort of really big pressure on women often by other women, often with very good intentions. Um, but there's a lot of pressure on us to pretend that body doesn't matter, when we don't care about what we look like. And Mia talks, and so, which I think is really unrealistic and also unfair, it's like blaming the victim. Well, the culture expects people to be perfect and beautiful. And then there's all this pressure and social sanctions when you're not. And then if you don't, uh, if you sort of, uh, try to even make it to, to have an easier life and make it so beautiful, then you get criticized so much, but it's not your fault, you know, that sort of stuff. So Mia's story was really good like this because she, she I mean, I won't sort of tell all her stories, but one of the very striking things she was talking about in her interview was how she um, did the plastic surgeon she did on her breast and she did Botox and she did it because she wanted to look pretty and why not? Uh, but she got she always felt guilty about it because there was sort of kind of sense of accept again uh, in the community of like accept yourself as you are and why would you even do think about doing something like this? Mm. Yeah, I think doing also sorry just that sort of to finish this. I just think like I don't have any any fixed ideas about how a woman should be, and that's what I would like to see more in our culture because I think I'm a little bit sort of feeling wary of this thing with everybody including us women feminists we're trying to tell each other how to be or not to be and i think if we want to not have makeup ever and grow hair why not if we want to go and do plastic surgery why not i just don't see the men usually are not held so accountable to how they look after their appearance yeah well I, I, maybe <laughs> maybe they are i don't know um, it's some extent, question. Yeah. um and you do talk about um Game of Thrones, for example, and uh, you know the representation, for example, um, of, uh, of of uh, Tyrion Lannister. That's right. Oh, sorry, I probably didn't make it clear. Now, what I meant to say is that um, men who like dress up or you know like work on their muscles, they usually don't get judged so harshly by other men saying, "Oh, why are you sort of making you know giving yourself a beautiful body or something like?" I guess that when men make choices about their appearance, I'm talking about choices, not about appearance that deviates from the norm. I, I think increasingly things are changing for younger men. They also have a lot of pressures around appearance. But I think when men make a personal, a man makes a personal choice to make a particular haircut or whatever, I don't know, to go to the gym to, to build a body, a particular body, I don't think the whole, the actions don't seem to me to be as 
viewed as political as it will be for a woman. Because if a woman does a plastic surgery, then there's a lot of pressure on her or Botox. Like I've got lots of friends who do cosmetic surgeries, but they hold it in secrecy. And I'm guilty of doing something like this myself too. I write about this in the book of uh, eliminating some spider veins from my legs. And I felt so guilty because I was betraying my sisterhood by that. How I would I care about spider veins on my, on my legs? But I don't think it should be like this, those personal choices. Sorry, I wasn't fair. No, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I know what you mean. And, and in particular, and you speak a lot about this too, about the whole, you know, body shaming culture, um, around, yeah. like from your mother's point of view in terms of lived experience. Um, but it's, this is something that I see, you know, I've been seeing a lot of in, and, and I've even, you know, I've seen it in myself, I've sort of had to almost um, very deliberately rework some of the images that I've, you know, having coming into my feeds and things like, you know, um, Instagram, for example, and making sure that um, it's not just, you know, a certain body type, because I want, you know, I feel as a, as a mother, as a woman, as you know, that it's important to broaden our experiences and, and broaden our perspectives of beauty. And, and you have to almost, if you grow up in a certain culture, um, you have to almost fight against that. You have to, you have to almost physically open yourself and, and look and really look um, at beauty in different ways. And that takes some, some effort, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. I find myself very self-conscious now that I've written this book when I'm with my sons. My boys are little, they're seven and five. Mm -hmm. And often I just want to say to them spontaneously, you're so beautiful, look at your mm -hmm. eyes, look at you, you know, I want to eat them. <laughs> I probably shouldn't be doing too much of that because if I do too much of it, it will always sort of focus on the body. So I don't know, it's defining this fine balance. It's, it's hard, it's very it's hard. And then, yeah. And we're products of our culture. It's it, and you know again you touch on that quite beautifully in the book. Um, so I know you're working on a a, a book now. I, I think I've read that you're working on a book on emotional honesty, which is you know really interesting because you've touched on that. I mean, obviously, imperfect is is you know intensely honest, sometimes painfully honest. Um, and you spoke earlier about writing you know a novel, which you felt wasn't honest, although honesty in a novel is a very, very interesting question. Um, and something that I, you know, we can maybe have a whole other session on um, later, uh, because I think it is a really interesting question uh, on a number of levels in a number of different contexts. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's such a hard balance to get that right. You know, what is honesty? And at what point are we being honest? Or are we simply, you know, picking up something um, as part of our culture that, you know, we're repeating and, you know, even knowing, getting that balance right? Absolutely. And I think, uh, I mean, speaking about fiction, I'll just say it very quickly that I think um, the best novels, they also come from very personal place. It doesn't matter if the writer writes about dragons or vampires. <laughs> if it's a good book uh, or about, you know, uh, 19th century France, if it's a good book, um, you, the concern, the main concern, the main uh, question that will be explored in this book will come from something that really bothers the author. And you really see it. I mean, I'm mentor writers and I can really see when the the fiction comes from the deep place in them or the, when they just try to write a novel because they want to write a novel and the, just very quickly the person who writes beautifully about fiction and emotional honesty if anybody is interested and want to read is uh, the fabulous Elena Ferranti the Italian novelist so she uh, I just finished actually I've got it here this is a great book for any aspiring writers or current or not aspiring established writers called 
Frantumaglia, where she discusses it's it, it different interviews with her and her letters mm. and some articles that she wrote, and she discusses in depth there how even uh, how fiction has to be about truth, the truth of the writer. Yes, I mean, even, you know, interestingly, and again, I've, I've been doing some work in this area, so it really does interest oh. the notion of your responsibilities if you're writing in fiction about something that actually happened. So, you know, if you're picking up on, for example, um, you know, a real event, you know, the Holocaust, let's just say, right? You know, what is your responsibility mm -hmm. if you're recreating a scenario or if you are doing kind of what if, if you, you know, change the nature of what happened or if you just don't have information and you're filling in gaps, what is your responsibility, um, you know, when you're writing that kind of historical um, novel? But again, that's a, it's a big that's question. So fascinating. It, it's a really big question. Absolutely. I would like uh, to read what you wrote about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, working on it. It's hard. <laughs> um, so tell me, tell me a little bit more, um, speaking of, of uh, truth, um, about Split. I've read, I haven't finished reading this now. Um, I've just uh, read the first four, I think I've got through the first four stories. And they are fascinating, they're particularly fascinating because um, the authors in this book are really well-known authors. And um, some of them write, uh, some of them are known for their nonfiction. Most of them are actually, um, but some of them are also known for their fiction. And it's really interesting, you know, as I'm reading stories that feel very much like fiction, um, like Alice Pons, for example, right? Um, uh, who, you know, I know her, her books quite well, but to read this book that kind of is about her real life, you have to keep thinking it, it's very fictional and the way she writes it, it's very much a, a narrative tale. And so you have to keep thinking, oh, wow, this is her actual story. And how does that align with um, fiction that also follows the contours of their lives? You know, what did, did you did you give, did you pick the writers and did you give them a remit? Yeah, yeah, so I did. I, I, um, I had a little vision for this book. Uh, so Split is a book about endings. Any type of endings can be ending with you, uh, an affair, ending um, a relationship with a country by leaving it, migrating, ending a career, ending a part of yourself, even uh, like divorcing, like changing your personality and getting rid of some part of you. Some writers wrote about it. And uh, when I was curating this anthology, I um, had a little vision that I wanted, again, it's to do with emotional honesty. I wanted to create a book that will be emotionally honest in representation on of how people deal with major life changes when something ends. Because in our culture, I'll say it briefly, I know we're running out of time, but in our culture, we're very in love with redemption, redemption narratives. So narratives where people go through, so every story that is being published or told in public, you know, on television or something, seems to have to sort of have a similar narrative arc where a person goes through difficult, tough, tough time, maybe loses somebody they really love, maybe something else happens, but at the end, we always have to emerge as a better person. So the hardship always has to be really uh, useful for something. And look, I understand. I mean, it's an optimistic way of looking at life and I love it too. And it's so nourishing and lovely to have happy endings, but I think it's just not realistic. And I wanted to, I think we need stories with happy endings, but we also need other stories to reflect how life really is lived. Sometimes you go through, excuse me, shit, and it just shit, and it didn't serve any purpose, you know. Um, and so I, my brief, so I, I did, I handpicked, uh, I, uh, um, yeah, I approached writers I really admire, like Alice Pung or 
Kate Holden or Amone Koval or Graham Simpson, etc., etc., and a few emerging writers that really love their works, uh, like Virginia Peters, for example, and Kate Goldsworthy and Haley Hutton. And then I, um, my brief to them was to tell me about a major life story which really shaped them in some way, so really impacted them. Uh, so not just just any ending, but a significant ending. And then I asked them, as I was saying now, to not try and prettify it and actually tell it as it is. If it were, if if the ending did good to them, great. If the ending did not go do any good to them. Let's say, okay. and most of the stories end up being kind of ambivalent because often, even when we really want to end something, let's say, finish a relationship or or get out of the country or I don't know what, or change ourselves in some way. Even then, uh, even when you get this result and you're successful, sometimes you lose something as well. There's a price to pay too. So that sort of was my. So this is what, where kind of the concept of emotional honesty came into. For me, when I wanted a book that reflects how life is lived as opposed to how we want it to be lived, which is always with a happy ending. And also that transformation notion that I think also runs as a theme through Imperfect, this idea of, you know, and I mean, there are some people who very physically transform themselves, some to good effect and some maybe not so good effect. But you Are know, you talking about extreme body modifiers? I I'm in particular body. thinking of that, yes. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I mean, I'm only talking about not to good affect those people who, you know, who were unhappy in the yeah, end. Yeah. Um, and, and some people like, I, I think it was, um, was it the, uh, it wasn't the dragon woman, but you know, the woman who was abused and she, oh, um, yes, the vampire woman, the yes. vampire woman. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Who, who actually, you know, found a whole new way of being in this world that was, you know, not only transformative to her, but, you know, transformative in terms of the people she was able to help and the work she was able to do in this world. Um, Absolutely. So really extraordinary to think about. And, and, you know, I'm thinking about that as I read Split, this notion of, you know, what, how do we change over time? How do we change? How do our scars change us? How do our, you know, how does our, um, uh, our experiences and our traumas change who we are and change the way we view our lives in this world and what we're here to do and, you know, how we perceive things. This is fascinating. I've never thought about this particular connection between the two books, but you're so right. Because appearance is all about change. We are changing, even when we don't do anything to ourselves. Sure, we age. Yeah. And then you have, of course, and then you have the major changes that happen to us or we initiate. Absolutely. And I guess if I was thinking along the lines of thinking about both books, I would think about uh, one theme probably would emerge for me. I'm just thinking it aloud now, but the unpredictability that we but we just know it's just so hard to predict what change will be good or not good for us. Like with the vampire woman, mm-hmm. uh, I just very briefly tell people who haven't read my book. It's about, so it's about a woman who, um, so it's a woman who was trapped in a t- Mexican woman who was trapped in a terrible domestic violence relationship. And she left, she had four kids. She was a lawyer. She left her husband and she decided to transform herself into a vampire woman. And she became the most modified woman in the world. And she did her body modifications, some of them very painful, deliberately without anesthetics, because what she wanted to do, her reason for transformation was, the the external transformation was to signal also, I'm transforming inside, I'm no longer a victim, I'm a strong woman now, and I'm going to, and she ended up sort of living a very interesting life. Uh, I'm in in touch on Facebook with her. I'm following her adventures, but she, she became a public speaker for a public face for the pervasive uh, domestic violence that happens in Mexico. And she 
that travels around the world. She helps other women trapped in these situations. Mm, yeah, extraordinary, extraordinary story, really. I mean, it, all of it is, really. So um, I know this is a, a strange time and you're in Melbourne, so it's, <laughs> it's particularly strange for you. I'm still in lockdown, I know. Um, <laughs> Stage four. <laughs> Stage four, yes, yes. And uh, I mean, numbers are going down, but who knows how long it'll be. Um, are you able to do work? What, what, are you, what are you working on now? I mean, are you in caretaker mode? I am in caretaker mode because I've got a five and seven bed. Mm-hmm. I'm just learning with, uh, you, you just, with writer's block is no longer an option. <laughs> I still write. I, did, I still manage to write now instead of writing four days a week for long, for long, relatively long hours. I write seven days a week for two hours at a time. And sometimes I have a child playing musical instruments at my feet while I'm trying to solve some problem in a chapter. And sometimes I, uh, you know, I, uh, um, I listen to uh, robots talking to me at the same time. <laughs> but I just, yeah, I just, I just do it. I think this this lockdown has been very. Um, what do you say it in English? If an experience doesn't break you, it makes you strong. Whatever I'm going for, this sort of what, what doesn't kill you makes you strong. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> I'm just going for this baptism of baptism of fire as a writer. Yes, right. learning to write in a battlefield under conditions. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are now pretty much uh, out of time, but um, it's been an absolute delight talking to you, Lee. Uh, where can readers who want to find out more about you um, find out more? Um, I've got a website, so just www.leekhoffman.com.au. Um, I just you can just Google me, yeah. And my books are every in every bookshop, really. So I, that sounds very self-promotional. I wish I didn't. <laughs> I'll say it for you. Um, you gotta get hold of Imperfect. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Absolutely, uh, a, a delight, extraordinary read. Really changed the way you think about uh, all sorts of things. So um, buy it. And buy it from a small bookshop if you can. Um, We need to support them. Okay, that's it. Thank you so much. And bye. Thank you so much, Maggie.